Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities needed it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Today, we head to Fergus Falls, Minnesota, and talk to their mayor, Ben Shire. It was a fascinating conversation and amazing how much we had in common, even though he's on the cold Midwestern plains and I'm on the warm California coast. We talked about how small cities can adapt to and thrive in a post-COVID world, how prairies are a vital economic and environmental resource. Mayor Shire explained what it's like to be elected and re-elected in a county that overwhelmingly supported Donald Trump and how Democrats can rebuild trust in rural communities. He then suggested a fantastic way to spend 24 hours in Fergus Falls that maybe want to jump on a plane as soon as the weather gets a little warmer. Enjoy. Fergus Falls Mayor Ben Shire, welcome to an honorable profession. It is wonderful to be speaking with you today. Thanks a lot, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be here. Happy to be here. So why don't we start by just hearing how are things in Fergus Falls, COVID, challenges to our democracy, everything else that's going on. How are things in your community? Well, there's a lot of challenges. I think that we'd be lying if we didn't say there's a lot of challenges in the world and in every community. In Fergus Falls, you know, we're returning to normal as much as possible. There's some COVID cases out there. We know it's still out there, but, you know, we've adjusted, like I think most communities hopefully have the best we can to the new normal, doing social distancing, staying home, wearing masks when we need to. Our businesses are open. But we're waiting patiently for warmer weather like everyone is here in Minnesota. We've had an extended winter, so looking forward to getting outdoors. But the economy is good based on sales tax collections. We're up about 13% over a year ago. My wife and I own two businesses. Our businesses are two restaurants in downtown Fergus Falls. And personally, I can say business is good. It's different than it was. I think that's the theme, right? Like businesses are going to have to realize that the new normals are different than the old normals, right? And businesses are going to have to adapt. And I think as governments, we need to recognize that too, and constantly be looking for ways to make sure that we're supporting those businesses and making sure our policies and the way we do our business in government supports those businesses and reflects the changes that these businesses have seen. I mean, I think that's one of my first questions was I saw you and your wife own a couple restaurants. I think there's a theme because I was just talking to Brownsville Mayor Trey Mendez, he owns a couple of restaurants in his community. Mayors and small town mayors and restaurants think there's something to that. But talk about managing a pandemic while also managing your own businesses. And you have five kids. The last couple of years must have been a handful for you. It's been kind of crazy when you think back, but like everyone else, I mean, it's you take it one day at a time, you wake up and you figure out how you're going to make it through the day from a city perspective. There was a point there, I think, where everyone, we didn't know what the future was going to bring. And so 
we've formed strong partnerships with county public health, with the State Department of Health, with our local healthcare providers, and with a number of nonprofits to make sure that we were able to provide the services to our to our citizens, whether that's something as simple as toilet paper or groceries, to make sure they're delivered, to making sure they have the care if, if they or their loved ones got sick with the health care that they needed. So that was the number one thing. And then this thing, then we had to figure it out. Like I said, our first business we started downtown was a brew pub and a pizzeria and got shut down. We could do carry out, completely changed our business plan, but it really kind of opened my eyes to possibilities, right? Where there's a crisis, there's often opportunities. And so we changed our business plan and we figured out how we were going to make it through there. And in the midst of it, quite honestly, my wife and I, when the world gives you a pandemic, what do you do? You start a second restaurant. We started a second restaurant right next door and said, hey, let's do it. The community, we knew coming out of the pandemic that our community needed places to be, places to gather. They wanted to be together. And so we created this second restaurant at Scandinavian Breakfast and Lunch Place based around the concept of community and cooperative. We recognize one of the biggest barriers to a successful business is for a restaurateur, for people in the food industry, is access to a facility, right? To a commercial kitchen. It'll be a big cost barrier. And we were very fortunate when we first started out that people were supportive of us. So anyway, we thought, let's support the food entrepreneurs, especially during this time of a pandemic, and give them a space. We had this beautiful kitchen in the back of the new facility. And we have five different licenses out of there, everything from a local ice cream producer to cakes and candies, caterers, you name it. There's food entrepreneurs working out of our back kitchen. In return, you know, we sell some of their products. So it works for us. But the point I'm getting at is, is like, how do we find new ways to cooperate with one another in this new environment to lower some of the barriers for people getting into business? And it ties into government, too, because I think there's a lot of things that we need to be aware of in government that the times are changing. And how do we make sure that we are staying on top of that, that we're not just going to go back to the same old normal because the world's different? I think that's such an incredible point. I mean, one is I think the tie between mayors and these businesses is Fundamentally, both jobs are about pulling people together, right? And building community. People tend to be a little bit happier over beer and pizza than they do in a council meeting, but they're both the same dynamic. But I think it's interesting because I think there's a lot of talk about the sharing economy and people focus on the Airbnbs and the Ubers of the world. But sharing commercial kitchen, capital intensive costs like having a commercial kitchen with a bunch of small startup food-based businesses is a really innovative use of the sharing economy. I mean, do you see other models for how that can be deployed for these new days, as you say, that we're living in? I think that there are other opportunities to be collaborative. I've seen coming out of this, like a lot of the businesses struggled. They look at their businesses differently and they're like, hey, how do we all collaborate? You know, we just got together as a group of downtown businesses. We got to look at competition differently, I think, and just recognize that more restaurants downtown first is, is ultimately going to be a draw, maybe a short-term competition. But I think it's the same. Retail is tough out there. Obviously, across the United States, retail is tough. But we've got to just like look at creative ways. What are the barriers that businesses are having to get in? And that can come from government too, like the licensing. Department of Health was just here today and Glad to say everything went fine, but it's a different world. How is in government are we looking at the role that we play in those businesses' lives? How are we making sure that that matches the new reality? Yeah. And with so much uncertainty, one of the 
real competitive advantages a place like Fergus Falls has is that it's a small enough community that everyone knows each other, but it's big enough to have some resources to be able to respond. Are you seeing people come to your community with remote work and and the other more flexible changes we're seeing across the broader economy who who want the lifestyle of a small town like Fergus Falls? Absolutely. One thing the pandemic has done, as we all know, is it's created more opportunities to work remotely. That was happening before the pandemic, and it's just exacerbated by what's happened over the last 18 months. And so, yeah, so just talk to a young entrepreneur from LA today who moved to Fergus Falls. And Fergus Falls, for those who don't know, it's about 15,000 people located in West Central Minnesota, about 50 miles east of Fargo, 180 miles northwest of the Twin Cities. We're out there where the prairie meets the woods and the rivers and the lakes country of Minnesota. It's beautiful. And yeah, so a town of 15,000 settled in a beautiful part of Minnesota is obviously a draw, especially for people who grew up in this area, this region, maybe went off into a larger city. So we're definitely, definitely seeing that, which presents some challenges too, right? Like housing, like so many other communities, affordable housing. But, you know, we'll take those challenges and do our best with them. But 100% see young families, a lot of uncertainty in the world too, as I think young families want to say, where do we want to raise our children? And I think a beautiful option is is a community like Fergus Falls, where you're close enough, you have the amenities of a thriving art scene, you have the small town businesses where people know, know your name, strong school districts. There's a lot of benefits, I think, people are realizing to some of these smaller communities. How did the uh, LA transplant survive the winter? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. It was kind of a brutal way. Still, it, it was snowing yesterday. Or actually, it was snowing on Monday. Pretty, we got a pretty good snowstorm, and this winter just won't end. But it's, the sun's shining out there today. So, and and our, the summers are beautiful. Speaking of weather, in addition to COVID and all the many challenges we've just been talking about, we also have the challenge of climate change. And you've been doing a lot of work to mitigate climate chaos and protect wildlife and restore your riverfront. Can you talk a little bit about those efforts and how you see your community adapting to climate change and and the challenges that come with it? We've done a lot of work in a lot of different ways. I'd say the most basic thing we've done is build partnerships, form partnerships. A couple examples. There's a, when I took office, there was a contaminated former dairy site that sat on 28 of the most prime acres overlooking the river and overlooking our downtown area. And it sat contaminated for generations. It was upside down. The private sector was not going to come in. There was too much contamination. And we formed partnerships with Minnesota MPCA, Pollution Control Agency, with LCCMR, which is a conservation group that uses lottery funding. And we found a way that the city could purchase that site, clean it up, We've got a trail along the river so the public can enjoy that space. That site is going to go back on the tax roll, so it's good economically for the city of Fergus Falls, but it's also good environmentally. Then the other partnership I wanted to talk about, because these issues are not easy in some of these rural communities, I think we'll get to this, but just to give people a perspective, Ottertail County, Fergus Falls is the county seat of Ottertail County. Ottertail County went 33 points for Trump, I think, in 2020. Fergus Falls was over 20, 21 or 22. We're not talking slightly conservative areas here. These are very conservative areas, but again, the root of conservative, right, is conservation. So I think it's the way we talk about these issues. One of the things that we have done is we partner with the United Prairie Foundation and the Wildlife Forever Foundation, our local school district, and U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. 
And Fergus Falls has a facility for fourth and fifth grade students of the public schools where half of their day is spent out on the prairie. It's called the Prairie Wetlands Learning Center. And my youngest son is in fifth grade, his second year out there. And it's just, I can't describe how important that is to a child's education to see whether it's science, math, literature, whatever they're studying for that half of their day. And this is every day, five days a week. They do it outside on the prairie, winter, spring, fall. To see the transformation of children and the way they view nature is something that's just remarkable. I often say that somebody's going to do something remarkable as well because of the education they got at that Prairie Wetlands Learning Center. But as a city, we work with the United Prairie Foundation and the Wildlife Forever. We're in the process of becoming the first Prairie City USA, which is going to be a cool collaboration where we've identified first phase over 100 acres of what's currently mowed Kentucky bluegrass, and we're converting it to natural prairie habitat, which is good for the environment. It's good for the ecology of, of the local environment, but it's also good for community engagement, and it's good for, for the taxpayers in the sense that you know there's less chemicals, there's less mowing, there's less equipment, there's less manpower. So to show, I think we have to look at these issues in ways that can cross political. This should never be a political issue. I think we can all agree on that. But the fact is that so many times it is. So we've got to find ways to talk about these things and show people the benefit that are more than simply because you or I believe it's the right thing to do. We've got to talk in a language that communicates with with, with everyone and resonates. I think it's an incredibly important point. I want to talk more about sort of what it's like to be a Democratic mayor in a county that was overwhelmingly voting for Trump. But I do want to talk about the prairies because I think when we think about climate change, we think about sea level rise and we think about rainforests, but prairies play an enormously important role in carbon sequestration and are obviously big chunks of our geography. Give us a little sense of what the prairies are and what they mean to your community culturally and environmentally, economically, and then, yeah, from what your son is learning in school and how that may change how prairies are seen in the future. They're important in all those areas, as you mentioned. You know, tourism is a big thing. So being the first Prairie City USA, that's just going to draw a lot of attention to the community, to Fergus Falls. The prairies, whether it's pollinators, the, the habitat for the pollinators, which are so incredibly important to our agricultural systems, to our food systems, just to our, you know, the ecological systems of our region. The sequestration that you mentioned, I mean, I don't know the, the numbers exactly, and I'm sure there's people out there do, but the potential for sequestration through native plantings on some of our prairies and grasslands is incredible just to sequester that carbon. So water runoff, right? So when, when we're talking about water quality, when we're talking about less chemicals in the ground, it's in so many different ways to benefit. And to think that you could do, like you can have a project with the city that's actually going to save money. It's, I think that presents a side of this issue, like who in the world would, and it's beautiful, right? These prairie flowers, I hope, I hope people can come out and see like these natural prairies that have been restored are just absolutely gorgeous. And the butterflies, the monarchs, the wildlife, what it means in so many different ways. And it seems kind of like a no brainer, but it doesn't just happen, right? Like you have to form partnerships and there's a lot of people that kind of came together to teach these young kids who I think what they're learning from prairie and, and how that's so important in so many different ways of our lives is something that's going to pay off dividends in the future. 
Yeah, I love that. I mean, and the fact that I'm sitting here in coastal California, 2,000 miles away, and I take my kids down to see the monarch butterflies when they're here, and your kids are seeing the monarch butterflies in a totally different context, makes you realize how interconnected we all are and how we have to solve, work collaboratively to solve all these problems. The one thing I maybe didn't mention is the general community engagement and showing people how you've got to think globally and act locally, right? And so these problems can sometimes seem overwhelming, but as a community and even as an individual, so we have partnered with just private citizens to do some small rain gardens or some small plantings in their yard and to show them that, you know, little things can really add up. And there's a lot of volunteers around the city. We've got some public spaces. We've got a small little plot just in front of my office at City Hall just to show people what can be done. And then as we do projects, we're incorporating native plantings that work as water retention ponds and stormwater runoff prevention through that. So rain gardens, et cetera. So there's a lot of things that you can do that doesn't have to be on a scale that is so massive that it's hard to accomplish. We can do some of these things on a small scale and show the average person, show the citizens, engage them in the community of what was actually possible. So speaking of acting locally, how did you find yourself being mayor? What was your path to public service was this something you, you dreamed about when you were a little kid or or you sort of found yourself thrown into it? I don't know if their elected officials can point to a specific moment in time when they realized they were going to run for public office. But mine, I can't. It was, it was Labor Day 2004. I was out. My wife and I had a newborn son. Our oldest son was just born. And we're out at Labor Day with my parents and siblings. And it was an election that year. If we remember back to 2004. And there's a political presidential campaign that was pretty hot and heavy. And I was spewing my wisdom to everybody that wanted to listen and even those that didn't. And uh, my dad said to me, there's a race for the city council in the ward that you just moved into. You should think about running. And I said, okay. He said, the deadline's tomorrow. So I went home. I talked to my wife. The next morning I was at city hall, really didn't know a thing about city government, didn't know a thing about local government. I had some national political opinions but what I did know is that's where I was going to live. And that's where my wife and I decided to raise our family, our growing family, which at the time was one son. And now we have five children. And so that's where I got in. I served two terms on the city council, took a break, didn't run for re-election just because we're a growing family, had to make some money. And then there were some issues locally in 2012, made me run again, some issues over historic preservation and just some issues that were important to us locally. And then ran for mayor in 2016 and ran for re-election in 2020. And I guess the rest is, that's where we're at today. So, And as you mentioned, it's a red county. And how did you maneuver in this world of increased polarization? And I imagine you've seen it now over your career as it's only gotten worse. How did you do it? How did you manage it? And what sort of advice do you have for others who may be living in red places, but feel a call to serve and, and are affiliated with the Democratic Party? Yeah. So to be clear, like, so I've elected twice as mayor and, and it's a nonpartisan office. So it's not official. It's not a partisan race. I have supported Democratic candidates. I think people know where I stand politically. I've been pretty open about that. I'm a moderate guy by my nature, but I do support Democratic candidates. There's no doubt about that. I've been pretty vocal. So one thing is, is I think it goes back to a couple things. What I've learned is, well, if there's three things, it's door knock, door knock, door knock, right? You got to continuously 
go out and talk to people. I think a lot of people try to win elections by having policy platforms and, and ideas and just actually talking and engaging voters where they are at is incredibly important. I think that a lot of Democrats have gotten away from that, quite frankly. So I think that's the most important thing is engaging. And, and when you engage, of course, I'm saying talking to voters, but more importantly, it's listening to voters, right? But I think every situation is, is going to be a little bit different. So it's not a one size fits all. But I do think that communicating with the voters where they're at, understanding where they're at, being able to compromise, we all have our core convictions. I think there's we have to have those core convictions. But you know, we also have to be able to compromise and realize that in order to move things forward, you've got to realize politically what the situation is and where you have to give some ground. But building trust, like my wife and I have been business owners in the community, spent a lot of time. I mean, it, you see a campaign, it comes and goes and it looks, but we spent decades building trust in the community. And I think that that's really important. And I think it's overlooked. People look at short term, look at cycles. And I think as a party in these rural areas, building trust, I think there's a lot of trust that has been lost with the Democratic Party in rural areas. And I think that they need to be there for the long term and not a short term, not a cycle, not looking at it as a cycle and how are we going to win. And of course, winning this cycle is incredibly important, whatever cycle it is that you're in. But the long term game, I think we've kind of lost sight of that. And I do think that people, what I've seen is you pay more attention to rural areas than they did four, six, eight, ten years ago. That's a positive trend. But I think building those long-term networks and building that trust, just having conversations, values, right? The values that we share in my community are not red or blue. They're values about people, about their neighbors, about their families, jobs. Got to keep simple messaging, I think, is really important to work with to win rural areas, jobs, healthcare, access to healthcare, affordable healthcare, good education for kids or children. The other stuff will come. We've got to win on the message, the simple economic message that has allowed us to be successful in rural areas in the past. And I think some of the other things will come along, but I think those are the issues that we have to lead with. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And it is about a long-term relationship. Can you talk about how you're using your Recovery Act dollars to stimulate the economy and and hopefully show a rural community that the Democrats invested and engaged with them when they needed it the most? The first round, we immediately just got that money in the businesses that needed it, right? So we had we had an application process and those businesses that were suffering, because there was a lot of uncertainty, we remember at that time. We didn't know which businesses were going to make it and which weren't. So we immediately got that money into the hands of the business, nearly all of it. And then more recently, we're looking at some of the infrastructure investments and long term. So it was immediate response to helping the businesses that are in crisis. And then more. And then this second round, more recently, we've looked more at the long term investments that we can make. So not only those businesses are going to make it through the pandemic, but they're going to thrive, right? So it's that long term investment. And one of the things we've really focused on is the is infrastructure of our core downtown. And we have a two-block stretch of riverfront. And like a lot of communities, Fergus Falls turned its back to the river over the last 60, 70 years. And we're reclaiming that riverfront. We've got a significant project that's phase one is just being completed now, leveraging public investments to spur private development. 
But as an example, you know, I talked about the dairy property just down the river from the dairy, closer between the dairy property and the downtown riverfront redevelopment. It's an old mill that, again, for decades, since I was in grade school, has sat vacant. And it's like on the corner overlooking the river of our busiest downtown intersection. And it's a six-story abandoned flour mill sitting there. And because of the investments that we've made on our riverfront, we have a $5.5 million redevelopment of that mill into a historic boutique hotel. You can just imagine the economic activity that that's going to, to spur in the downtown. So we kind of looked at it in a two-pronged way. First of all, get the money to the businesses that need it to make it through short-term. And then what are the long-term investments in our community, in our downtown, our core infrastructure that we can make to help spur that long-term activity to make sure our businesses are sustainable? I love it. It's a smart two-prong approach and I hope it pays off economically for your community and and starts to build that bridge that, as you said, we need to build for the long-term relationships. I want to just ask you, I read this beautiful article about a Fergus Falls couple who welcomed Afghanistan refugees, Afghani refugees into their home and into your community. And I thought it was in a day where everything feels very partisan and polarized, it felt very human. And I wonder if you could just talk briefly about how your community has sort of tried to welcome in people who are in need and what that's been like in a county that, that where there are partisan divides. Yeah. So Minnesota has a history, as I hope many people know, of, of being a state that welcomes refugees at a rate at the top of the nation. We have for several, several decades. You know, in our community, it's an issue. If people are out there in the rural areas, that's an issue that really divides people. Yeah, there was a beautiful article that you're referencing. There's challenges. And what we have to do, I think, is recognize, again, to talk about these things. For example, you know, if you look at the economy in Minnesota as a whole, we need something like 200,000 workers just to maintain the status quo. That's not to grow our economy. That's just to do uh, over the next, I don't know how many years that is, 10 or 15 years. Where are those workers going to come from? I think it's an economic issue as well. So I think it has to be looked at and talked about fully. You know, the Minnesota Chamber of Commerce recognizes that we're going to need, we're going to need workers in the economy as a state that welcomes refugees. We always have. They've been incredible boosters to our economy. But I'm not going to lie, that's a really, really difficult conversation to have. It's one of the most divisive conversations to have. In our communities, here's the bright spot. At the local level, we have the trust to have those difficult conversations, and that's where they have to take place. I won't pretend that these are easy issues to solve just because it's the right thing to do. That doesn't mean it's politically easy to do or that we can achieve those goals. We've got to have the tough conversations and look at these kind of issues, not only as the right thing to do, but also how does it benefit our economy? How does it benefit our communities culturally? The faith community has to be involved in that conversation as well. That's an incredibly important part of this whole thing too. And I think that in many areas, the faith community has been too silent in that conversation because they play a major role in my community and many other rural communities in the conversations around these issues. And so, yeah. Yeah, I agree. Thank you for the honest assessment of the opportunities and challenges. In my final question here, I fly into Fergus Falls. I have 24 hours to spend in your city. What should I do? How should I enjoy your community? You better start by having Minnesota's best omelet at the Viking Cafe. 
you got to check out the local art scene. We have three art galleries down. We have some beautiful art in our community. It's a thriving art scene. So you got to check out the local art scene, the galleries. Let's see. 150th anniversary of Fergus Falls this year. Happy birthday, Fergus Falls. So you got to check out the exhibit, Fergus Falls Through the Years, out at Ottertail County Historical Society. Talked about the prairie wetlands. Ryan, you got to take a walk out there, hike the prairie trails out there. Probably, if you got time in the afternoon, you might want to go bowling. What time is it now? We got a few hours left, right? Get a picture with Otto, the world's largest otter, right? Otto sits in Grotto Park, so you got to get a picture with that. Probably want to come down to Union Pizza and Brewing Company. If I can put a plug in for my place and get a pizza and a beer. But there are three local breweries in Fergus. We're a town of 15,000 people, three breweries along the river. It's beautiful. And then, of course, you got to go swimming in one of our lakes, swimming and fishing. And the Ottertail County has more lakes than any county in the world. So it's beautiful. Make your trip in the summer, Ryan, okay? <laughs> that sounds good. Yeah, I'm not, I don't think I'm ready for uh, lake swimming in uh, February. Now I'm both hungry and excited to come visit your, your city. My daughter did just come in. She came after school into the restaurant. She said, Dad, we did the, my soccer team did the polar plunge today because there's still ice on the lakes. Oh, my God. We're not quite ready for swimming yet, but they evidently jumped in the lake today. So Your daughter's braver than this California boy uh, <laughs> in that regard. But uh, Ben Char, I want to thank you for being a New Deal leader. And thanks for sharing this about your part of the world. I think most Americans live in these small cities. We don't spend enough time hearing their stories or the opportunities and the challenges and we appreciate your leadership as a model for all of us. Well, I really appreciate it, Ryan. Honored to be a New Deal leader and share with other leaders across the state in, in the pro-growth progressive ideals that they put forward. And yeah, it's exciting. And, and I appreciate the fact of little old Fergus Falls and me and the mayor of Fergus Falls having the opportunity to exchange ideas with great leaders across the country. So thanks for everything that the New Deal does. Hey, thank you. Have a great day and give your daughter some hot chocolate to warm her up. <laughs> Thanks, Ryan. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders. And keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.